Hi. Um, first of all, apologies for the delay in the start um, of the event. Um, and good evening and welcome. Um, it's wonderful to see so many people here at our World Horses event in support of Refugee Week. Um, my name is Shanaz Kadar and I work for Writers Centre Norwich's Programme Manager. As part of my role, I've had the pleasure of managing the Norwich City of Refuge Community Arts Education Programme and the, and the European offshoot Sharazad. Norwich joined the International Cities of Refuge Network in July 2006. In doing so, the City Council signalled a clear commitment to freedom of speech and expression. Writers Centre Norwich became the delivery organisation for this project, and since then we've been running a wide-ranging community arts education programme, which aims to change people's perception of exile and develop an understanding of the issues that refugees face and the contributions that they have and continue to make to this society. At the centre of this programme lies an important platform for exiled writers in their work, a space to raise awareness of those who remain under the threat of oppression, violence and persecution. Through the events, activities and projects organised, we challenge the stereotypes often projected onto refugees and asylum seekers. I'm pleased to share that through this programme, we've reached over 18,000 people in and across Norfolk alone, and 12,000 of these are young people. Refugee Week is a UK-wide celebration of the contributions that refugees make. It's therefore a very important platform of work that we aim to contribute to as part of our creative programme. We're very pleased to be part of this national programme, and at a time of so much upheaval in the world, we've brought together three extraordinary writers who understand the realities of exile, the power of words, and how stories can help us understand each other's experiences. Before we begin, I'd like to bring your attention to a slight change in the programme. Today we're delighted to introduce our City of Refuge writer in residence, Arturo Dorado. Arturo is a Cuban novelist who was forced to flee Cuba in 2011, following ongoing harassment and censorship by the Cuban authorities, who made it very difficult to get his work published in his own country. Despite the censorship he's faced, he's managed to get some of his short stories and articles published in print and online. Arturo has also been the, the recipient of more than 17 Cuban awards and literary prizes, and he has recently completed a novel that will be published in Spain next year. He arrived in Norwich two months ago. This is the second public event that he's participated in since his placement with us began. Some of you may have seen him at the Norwich and Norfolk Festival Tribunal 12 event. We're pleased to support a writer who is able to shed light on human rights issues in Cuba. And without further ado, I'd like to invite Arturo to take the floor and to say a few words about his experience. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you. The first thing that I must uh, is please forgive my English because my limitation of the English prevent me to express all the things that I want to say. And secondly, the most important thing is to say thanks, particularly to the writer centers here, and two persons, Michael and she Max, and the writer center, and the ICON programs, because this opportunity of the City of Refugee program that is so important for me and has been something like a more than despite a recovering confidence in the possible right um, continues believing and fighting. Also, I want to appreciate the, the City of Norwich and the United Kingdom 
who offered me uh, a political asylum in just three days and understood perfectly how was my situation, like uh, <coughs> this event in Cuba. Because something that I would like to tell you that is the first thing, see, when you're talking with me, you are with a person in, with his li in his life, Cold War is not a dead fact. It's not something that you can read in history, it's actually a reality in my country. We are living under a totalitarian system, and a communist system that unfortunately many people still around the world continue supporting and continue believing that is an idea and it's not. It's precisely one of the most terrible things that is happening to human beings. I can't explain to you about my personal situation and my uh, adventures in Cuba because things in Cuba are different to another countries. We are Cubans, so we have this funny side and this uh, romantic side that makes things not so cruel like another country. But <coughs> instead of speak about me, I prefer to speak about my, our situation and about my friends. Because when I'm talking with you now, my friends are talking <coughs> by me. And also I want to tell you a little bit about what means literature uh, in the condition when you live under the totalitarian system and when later you are inside. The first thing that I would like to tell you is, uh, is the total light that means a communist society. Absolutely total light from the very foundation and to the top. It's a light. It's a society where everything is perverted, where everything is moving <coughs> in the wrong side. So it's a society which degradates the individual, not only in the physical, but in the most important thing, in the moral, in the soul of the people. So this moral degradation, that is the most dangerous thing that happens in the totalitarian society, and particularly in the communist one, is a destruction that affects all the fear of the society and that creates your life something like a total nightmare, even when you could be uh, smiling, even when you could be enjoying it, even if you go to Cuba and you will see people dancing and people are apparently happy, that is the max, because inside it, that this destruction that happened on the totalitarian societies. The feeling of alienation that you could feel is you are in this kind of society and you try to keep your position, you try to keep uh, to think uh, by yourself, it's difficult to explain in words. The closest idea that you could have is a Kafkaian society because the most important thing is that in order to survive, not only under the political repression, I must insist about that, but in order to survive in this order that is totally perverted, you need to accept the absurdity of the society. I guess that uh, even better than my words, I would like to quote here one of the persons and the politicians who most has inspired my life and who was a, like a guide in order to keep an ethical attitude and a position in order to define not only uh, a, a writer but a citizen, Bacchus Howell. And I would like to quote you the power of powerless. That is one of the succinctics, a very a better uh, expression of what means to live under totalitarianism. He said the post-totalitarian system touch people at every step, but it does so with its ideological growth on. This is why life in the system is so thoroughly permeated with hypocrisy and lies. Government by bureaucracy is called, is called popular government. The working class is enslaved in the name of working class. The complete degradation of the individual is presented as his ultimate liberation. Depriving people of information is called making it available. The use of power to manipulate is called the public contract of power. And the arbitrary abuse of power is called observing the legal code. 
This repression of culture is called its development. Dispersion of imperial influence is presented as support for the oppressed. The lack of free expression becomes the highest form of freedom. Fabrica, uh, farcial, sorry, elections become the highest form of democracy. Banning independent thought becomes the most scientific of world views. Military occupation becomes fraternal assistance because the regime is, is captive to his own lives. It must falsify everything. It falsifies the past, it falsifies the present, and it falsifies the future. It falsifies statistics. It pretends not to possess an omnipotent and unprincipled policies apparatus. It pretends to respect human rights. It pretends to persecute no one. It pretends to fear nothing. It pretends to pretend nothing. Individuals, and that is the most important thing that happens when you live under that society, individuals need not to believe of all these mystifications, but they must behave as thou they did. Or they must at least tolerate them in silence or get along well with those who work with them. For this reason, however, they must live uh, sorry, without a light. They, within, sorry, a light. They need not set the light. It is enough for them to have accepted the life with it and in it. For by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, are the system. And that is the main point when you are writing on, you decide to escape from that. When you see this absurdity that everyone is inside the network that creates a communist society, and particularly after the first moment when the illusion of the revolution is gone, and just the light and the relation and the moral decline period, and you look and you, of course, in that moment, you are alienated. You are started to understand what means fight. Because you become an exile in your own country. One of our greatest poets and writers, Raul Rivero, uh, coined uh, a word, inside, when you are separated from your own society, when you are precisely banned in your own society. In my case, I left Cuba not precisely uh, in that moment with any uh, particular uh, political reason. In that moment, I was inviting for my Facebook friend, but I was in contact with the pen club. And my situation in Cuba was almost uh, at the verge of one word that is difficult to explain, madness. Because this suffering and this feeling of alienation and the feeling that you have lost your country and that you are suffering real repression uh, <coughs> is something that is going inside you more and more and more and creates some suffering that is difficult to explain also because it's that you lost everything. You lost your country even when you are inside it. <coughs> you lost your values. And you are constantly doubting what is the meaning of, of speak, write, and to believe. Because the majority of the society is accepting this state of things. And particularly in the communist society, when the repression could exist, and it's very hard in Cuba, but it's more subtle. It's not like what you see traditional dictatorships. It's an ideological uh, uh, repression that is ideological and in a way like a religious repression because it has a goal. So communist societies are something like a produ uh, production of history and a society that must be an historical process, according to the, to the government, is something that is a determinable on some height and law. So I came to the United Kingdom, and I have to apply for political asylum because of my activities. And when I, could be, I could suffer perhaps 10 or 20 years of prison in Cuba. It doesn't mean that it necessarily will happen. 
but it could be, because one of these things that are important in Cuban society is just precisely that the law is not always the law. It depends on how the authority decides to use the law. So the risk is on you, and it could be applied or not, depending on the political circumstances and even to the will of the officer, the officer of the political police who, who uh, attempt your case. When you are a dissident, you are several uh, officers who attend you, and even you create a personal uh, relation with them, that even you can call them friends in a very particular way. It's, yes, I use it to get drink and to get drunk, yes, with them, yes, it was funny. And I remember, let's make an anecdote, the first time they were arresting me, I was 20 years old, and I was walking in the street, and they come, because it's funny, like a film, with a car, a Russian car, that's very important, Moscow, and the car is stopping. And the street, I was just, you know, the street was my backpack, and they opened the doors, and three officers come just to me, and that is one of the most important moments when they show you the car net the ID that said DSE, Department of Security of the State. And they said, come with me. So I was a writer, there was not physical violence. They avoid to use physical violence against writers and whatever, but they use a lot of physical violence in that moment. And we have a, a good time of about 25 hours um, speaking, drinking, smoking, and with my use file that was something like that, and with the possibility of a year of prison. Because I was, well, you could be a year of prison later. I was uh, liberated, and I understood what it means precisely to be a paria in your own society. What means when people cross the street because they don't want to greet you because you are a political dissident. And this war that you start to be a political is something like a total stigma that isolates you from everything. So when I move here, I realize uh, the meaning of freedom, but also, also I realize the terrible sadness that makes the exile. The feeling of, of loneliness, the feeling of homesick, and the feeling that you have lost everything. Now I nourish, I hope that I can uh, start a new life. And it's something that I beg you, the possibility to find again my friends, to find again the network is gone, and particularly the possibility that continues doing something for these people that are in Cuba and uh, for my leadership. Finally, I would like to quote something that is very important. In this moment of sadness, in the moment of loneliness, in Cuba, and particularly here, when you feel precisely this, you cannot combat, you are locked, everything. I have something when I felt really tired, when I felt without energies, and that is the most important novel in the Spanish language, and the base of our literature, and perhaps the greatest novels ever written, Don Quixote. And in this moment when Don Quixote is dying, I would like to quote you what Sancho Panza said. Uh, he said, At, when Don Quixote decided to die, At, says Sancho, weeping, Don't die, master, but take my advice and live many years, for the foolishest thing a man can do in this life is to let himself die without rhyme or reason, without anybody killing him or any hands but melancholy making an end of him. Come, don't be lazy, but get up from your bed and let us take the fields in Shepherd's stream, as we agreed. Perhaps behind some bush, we shall find the Lady Dulcinea disenchanted, as fine as fine can be. Now, I am waiting that in this city, my disenchanted Lady Dulcinea appear again. So, <laughs> the opportunity that you can offer me to have a new life and continue uh, doing for my writing and for literature, 
And something that I would like to, like to tell you is that, please remember, what important is freedom and to keep this possible that you have here to speak freely without fear and to decide the destiny of your own country. That's perhaps the most important thing that you must remember and is perhaps the best thing that I can offer to you. So thank you very much for your time and for your <laughs> Our second writer this evening is Vesna Goldsworthy. Vesna um, emigrated to the UK from the former Yugoslavia, now Serbia. She's an academic broadcaster and also an author of several widely translated prize-winning books. Her first, Inventing Ruritania, The Imperialism of the Imagination, is an influential study of the Balkans in literature and in film, and will be published in an updated paperback edition in 2013. Her best-selling memoir, Chernobyl Strawberries, has, brought, has had 14 editions in German translation alone and was serialised in the Times and chosen as BBC Radio's fourth book, book of the week. Her Crashaw-winning poetry, prize-winning poetry collection, The Angel of Salonika, was one of, the best, one of the Times' best poetry books in 2011. Having been a former BBC producer and journalist, Vesna continues to script and produce programmes for a range of European broadcasters. A TV feature on blood and fiction was part of an autumn book series on Sweden's SVT, and her most recent full-length English language production, Finding a Voice in a Foreign Tongue, was broadcast by BBC Radio 4 and the BBC World Service. Today she'll be reading from both her memoir, Chernobyl Strawberries, and selected poems from the Angel of Salonika. Please join me, please join me in welcoming Vesna. Thank you, um, Shanaz, for that introduction and um, explaining what the books are because I'm not going to be doing any introducing. I'm just going to read um, two pieces from uh, Chernobyl Strawberries, uh, the memoir, and then uh, a couple of poems. Um, the um, um, excerpts from Chernobyl Strawberries, uh, because I'm feeling like it today, will be about fathers um, and grandfathers, and uh, because of something that Alvin um, has read uh, this morning more precisely about funerals, I will open with a funeral scene. Um, right. The day of my father-in-law's funeral was one of those sunny, translucent English summer days when everything stands still for a moment. The air was full of pollen, petals, and fragrance, as though someone had turned the earth with London on it, upside down and back again, like a snowstorm in a paperweight. Even the slopes of Kensal Green Cemetery, in an otherwise bleak corner of northwest London, looked so fecund and lush that it seemed as if Victorian stone angels had gathered for a picnic on broken gravestones scattered like sugar cubes among wildflowers and tall grasses. I watched the small groups of white-haired men and women gather around my husband and his brother in front of the cemetery chapel. The mourners are so unmistakably English that they might have been painted by Gainsborough two centuries earlier. Fresh from their trains at Victoria and Charing Cross, 
They look alien and out of place, as though London is a foreign town to be negotiated with care. Many of the men wear silk neckties with colorful regimental stripes and highly polished, thick-soled shoes, which fall on the ground with a heavy parade sound. Even in retirement, they look as though they are in uniform. Indian Army, whispers one experienced chapel attendant to another. My father-in-law's long, long coffin is carried into the chapel. No one displays visible signs of grief, although it is somehow clear that the occasion is a mournful one. At a Belgrade family funeral, someone would have been wailing at this point. Other mourners would have audibly stifled their sobs in the pauses between orations or sighed heavily against the low monotone of the orthodox chant. Here, we open our hymn books and sing at the prompt given by the organist. I'm not familiar with the tunes they, and pay too much attention to the Victorian verse, which is at the same time touchingly beautiful and too upbeat about death for my taste. The celebration of departure, the refusal to accept separation as anything but a brief interlude makes it sound as though my father-in-law is off to plant a union flag in the sands of some paradise island. I stumble over the lines, catching up and losing the melody. I can't get myself to sing at an Anglican funeral, just as I couldn't, were it the Orthodox one, wail as my female ancestors were expected to. In Serbia, old women were sometimes even paid to mourn. They walked behind the coffin in the funeral procession and celebrated the dead in wailing laments delivered in rhythmic, haunting pentameters. I'm stuck somewhere between the singing and the wailing, speechless. And the cut to my father now. In those daily calls during the bombing season, it is my father who keeps the laughter alive. With my sister and her children gone, mother is like a flame extinguished Yet father suddenly makes the war seem nothing if not funny. He has seen it all before, he claims. His Second World War stories have a Mark Twain-like glow of childhood memory and a whatever happens now, I've seen it worse stoicism. We laugh for long minutes before one of us puts the receiver down. Whatever could you have found so funny, ask my husband and my mother in unison at different ends of the transcontinental line. The fact that the telephone connections between my two warring countries remain open is a little miracle in itself. Father had already seen two aerial attacks on Belgrade on Easter Day. The Germans bombed in 1941 when he was eight and the Allies in 1944. They went for many of the places NATO is targeting today. Third time lucky, Father says, when the oil refinery in the River Valley explodes, emitting a large black mushroom cloud. Your mother will have to wash the curtains now. On British television, where I watched them, the direct hits sound strangely muted, like the crack of a bicyclist's skull hitting the asphalt. 
I may be an orphan at 66, but at least I no longer have my mother to worry about, only yours, father says. I once thought of father's generation of men as cowards, simply because they allowed the communists to rule unchallenged for so many years. I admired the Czechs and the Hungarians who climbed on the Soviet tanks in those grainy black and white documentaries, and I thought of them as much more courageous than the Serbs, the Croats, and the rest of the Yugoslav lot. Now I wonder if I was right. I realize how much easier it is to climb on an enemy tank than to know exactly what to do with your own. My generation of spoiled, well-traveled, English-speaking socialist kids has hardly done much better. Christ is risen, Daddy! I shout from West London on a Sunday morning. He is risen indeed, Father shouts back from Serbia against the wailing sound of air raid sirens. There is no reason to interrupt the conversation. My parents stay away from air raid shelters. The phone lines crackle but remain alive and I continue to call once a day to ward off the evil eye. <coughs> then the war stops. The British army advances into Pristina and it is an ending of sorts. It is somebody else's worry now, I tell my parents, but this is true only up to a point. I don't want to see British soldiers dying. I'm British too. And um, two poems um, from the Angel of Salonika. The first short one, um, they're both short. The first one was uh, a poem of the week in the Guardian in um, January, and it was called. In, it is called, "He stands so thin and waits." I take my spectacles off before the inclines of his limbs emerge from the crowd, before the smile closes his eyes below the clock at Waterloo. Halfway between a Giacometti and the mice and Chinaman. He stands so thin and waits. Yet I am the fragile, the much suchered one. This time shall we? His question bleeds into the departure of the 142. For fear of being early, I am the one who is late, who takes the last few steps like someone who hasn't walked before. But how are you? I ask and hold his hand for a moment in what I hope feels like a handshake. We do not touch thereafter. We do not touch. And the second poem um, is called Black Linen. Long shot, a formation of Canada geese, a perfect victory sign above the weeping willows. The bird's eye view of palaces and artificial lakes hidden beyond the contour lines of suburban streets. Then the Cotswolds, where the river begins, the heart of England, wherever that may be. Mid-range, the stillness of a summer afternoon, the surface tension of water between the tides, a spider mid-leap a dowsing pendulum suspended on a silk cord from the perfect orb of home. 
above the trunk of a fallen sycamore tree, which finds both the east and the estuary, but stays unmoving at the river's edge, to gather flotsam from a decomposing world, and tremble like a needle in the compass, held in place by the moon, here too, already, unlit and unlooked for in the eastern sky. Of the many futile projects underway, which one got a stalking of the properties of magnets and magnetic fields? Finally, the close-up. The smell of your linen shirt, the washing soap, and deeper in its threads, sea salt, bergamo, neroli, petigran. What do we know? What do we know? You start, but hold on the cusp of some other sentence. Beneath our feet are tunnels and underground trains, bodies pressed against each other, eyes averted, as if to say, this is how it must be. Their unwanted intimacy, the exact opposite of the pose we strike so casually, while London burns and melts at 36 degrees, as though not trapped at all, as though completely free. Thank you. Teju Cole. Um, Teju is a writer, art historian, street photographer, and distinguished fighter in residence at Bath College. He was born in the US to Nigerian parents. Raised in Nigeria, he currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. He's the author of two books, a novella, Every Day is for the Thief, and a novel, Open City, which won the Penn Hemingway Award, the New York City Book Award for Fiction and the Rosenthal Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. It was also shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the New York Public Library Young Lions Award. He also contributed to the New York Times, the New Yorker Transition, Tin House and the Public Space, as well as many other publications, and is currently working on a book-length non-fiction narrative of Lagos and on a Twitter project called Small Fates. This evening, Teju Cole will be reading from Open City, which has also been one of the books promoted through our Summer Reads campaign. Please join me, join me in welcoming Teju. an easy place from which to set out into the city. The path that drops down from the Cathedral of St. John the Divine and crosses Morningside Park is only 15 minutes from Central Park. In the other direction, going west, it is some 10 minutes to Sakura Park. Walking northward from there, 
brings you toward Harlem along the Hudson, though traffic makes the river on the other side of the trees inaudible. These walks, a counterpoint to my busy days at the hospital, steadily lengthened, taking me farther and farther afield each time, so that I found myself at quite a distance from home late at night and was compelled to return home by subway. In this way, at the beginning of the final year of my psychiatry fellowship, New York City worked itself into my life at walking pace. Not long after this aimless wandering began, I had fallen into the habit of watching bird migrations from my apartment, and I wonder now if the two are connected. On the days when I was home early enough from the hospital, I used to look out the window like someone taking auspices, hoping to see the miracle of natural immigration. Each time I caught sight of geese swooping in formation across the sky, I wondered how our life below might look from their perspective, and imagined that were they ever to indulge in such speculation, the high-rises might seem to them like firs massed in a grove. Often as I searched the sky, all I saw was rain, or the faint contrail of an airplane bisecting the window, and I doubted in some part of myself whether these birds, with their dark wings and throats, their pale bodies and tireless little hearts really did exist. So amazed was I by them that I couldn't trust my memory when they weren't there. I returned to New York in mid-January. The pilot's voice crackling through the system added to the anxiety of the turn, because those ordinary and by now banal words we're now making our final approach for landing seemed to carry some ghostly portent. My thoughts quickly became entangled with one another, so that in addition to the usual morbid thoughts one normally has on a plane, I was saddled with strange mental transpositions, that the plane was a coffin, that the city below was a vast graveyard with white marble and stone blocks of various heights and sizes. But as we broke through the last layer of clouds and the city in its true form suddenly appeared a thousand feet below us, the impression I had was not at all morbid. What I experienced was the unsettling feeling that I, I had had precisely this view of the city before, accompanied by the equally strong feeling that it had not been from the point of view of a plane. And it came to me. I was remembering something I had seen about a year earlier. The sprawling scale model of the city that was kept at the Queen's Museum of Art. The model had been built for the World's Fair in 1964 at great cost, and afterward had been periodically updated to keep up with the changing topography and built environment of the city. It showed in impressive detail with almost a million tiny buildings and with bridges, parks, rivers, and architectural landmarks, the city. The attention to detail was so meticulous that one could not help but think of Borges's cartographers, who, obsessed with accuracy, had made a map so large and so finely detailed that it matched the empire's scale on a ratio of one to one. 
a map in which each thing coincided with its spot on the map. It proved so unwieldy that it was eventually folded up and left to rot in the desert. Our view from the plain as we banked over Queens itself brought all of that back to mind. And in this case, it was the real city that seemed to be matching point for point my memory of the model, which I had stared at for a long time from a ramp in the museum. Even the raking evening light falling across the city evoked the spotlighting used at the museum. On the day I had seen the panorama, I had been impressed by the many fine details it presented, the rivulets of roads snaking across a velvety central park, the boomerang of the Bronx curving up to the north, the elegant beige spire of the Empire State Building, the white tablets of the Brooklyn Piers, and the pair of grey blocks on the southern tip of Manhattan, each about a foot high, representing the persistence in the model of the World Trade Center towers, which in reality had already been destroyed. The engine emitted a low grumble, and the boat pitched back a little and trembled, as though it were inhaling air in readiness for a dive. Then it pushed off the pier, and soon the water between us and the docking piers widened, and the chatter of the revelers floated up from the glass-in cabin. We traced a fast arc south, and the taller buildings in the Wall Street area soon loomed into view on our left, Closest to the water was the World Financial Center with its two towers linked by the translucent atrium and lit blue by nightlights. The boat rode the river swells. Sitting on deck, watching the frothy white wake of the black water, I felt myself pulled aloft and down again as though by the travel of an invisible bell rope. Within a few minutes of our entering the upper bay, we saw the Statue of Liberty, a faint green in the mist, and very quickly massive and towering over us, a monument worthy of the name, with the thick folds of her dress as stately as columns. The boat came close to the island, and more of the students had by now moved up onto the deck, and they pointed, and their voices, which filled the air around us, fell echolessly into the water. The cruise organizer came up to me, and greeted me. I acknowledged his greeting with a faint smile, and he, sensing my solitude, went away again. The crown of the statue has remained closed since late 2001, and even those visitors who come close to it are confined to looking upward at the statue. No one is permitted to climb up the 354 narrow steps and look out into the bay from the windows of the crown. Bartholdi's monumental statue has not, in any case, done particularly long service as a destination for tourists. Although it had its symbolic value right from the beginning, until 1902 it was a working lighthouse, the biggest in the country. In those days, the flame that shone from the torch guided ships into Manhattan's harbor. That same light, especially in bad weather, fatally disoriented birds. 
The birds, many of which were clever enough to dodge the cluster of skyscrapers in the city, somehow lost their bearings when faced with a single monumental flame. A large number of birds met their deaths in this manner. In 1888, for instance, on the morning after one particularly stormy night, more than 1,400 dead birds were recovered from the crown, the balcony of the torch, and the pedestal of the statue. The officials of the island saw an opportunity there, and as was their custom, sold the birds off at low cost to New York City milliners and fancy stores. But it was to be the last time they would do so, because one Colonel Tassin, who had military command of the island, intervened and was determined that any birds that happened to die in the future would not be disposed of commercially, but would be retained in the service of science. The carcasses, each time 200 or more of them had been gathered, were to be sent to the Washington National Museum, the Smithsonian Institution, and other scientific institutions. With this strong instinct for public spiritedness, Colonel Tassin undertook a government system of records which he ensured were kept with military regularity, and shortly afterward, he was able to deliver detailed reports on each death, including the species of the bird, date, hour of striking, number striking, number killed, direction and force of the wind, character of the weather, and general remarks. On October 1 of that year, for example, the colonel's report indicated that 50 rails had died, as had 11 wrens, two catbirds, and one whip-poor-will. The following day, the record showed two dead wrens, the day after that, eight wrens. The average, Colonel Tassin estimated, was about 20 birds per night, although the weather and the direction of the wind had a great deal to do with the resulting harvest. Nevertheless, the sense persisted that something more troubling was at work. On the morning of October 13, for example, 175 wrens had been gathered in, all dead of the impact, although the night just passed hadn't been particularly windy or dark. Thank you. writers, um, we do still have time for a few questions from the floor, um, which we'd be happy to take. Um, so if, we, if you would like uh, to ask a question, please raise your hand. Everyone hear the question? Um, how long has it been since Vesna started to dream and think in another language, in English? Uh. My initial thought is, have I started to think? <laughs> <laughs> Insofar as I think, um, <laughs> I, uh, when I moved to this country, um, my English was good enough to go to a pub and order a drink and a meal. And I remember 
reading um, The End of the Affair by Graham Greene um, and checking about 20 words a page on a, uh, in my dictionary. So that is the rough level. It took about um, 10 years before I, I, I could write academic work and another five before I could write prose confidently and then another five before I started writing poetry. Uh, and that is roughly the time when I cease to be aware, absolutely cease to be aware, which language I'm dreaming in, or indeed which language I'm thinking in. It just comes, whatever. Um, the interesting thing is that um, I used to work for the BBC uh, um, in the 1990s, and even then I um, used to read uh, uh, the news in Serbian, and if something went wrong in the studio, my default language already then in the 1990s, I came to this country in 1984, was somewhere English, because I would read, there was this flow of Serbian words, something goes wrong, and then I say, oops, sorry, sorry, <laughs> I, I apologize, was there in English. So they're the kind of these two layers, which I really, uh, um, at some points, couldn't disentangle. Uh, it's, but it is a very gradual process. 20 years is a, a when, a long time. When you, when you dream of home and childhood, yes. do you dream of that in English or in Serbian? Jonti, it's a very difficult question. Um, I mainly dream about um, going into a broadcasting studio and couldn't find the door number, or um, having to sit an exam and forgetting my scripts. It's all my dreams, all the dreams that I remember are these sort of anxiety dreams. And when I have better dreams, they don't have words. Arthur, in English. Arthur, yes. I just was interested, I, so you've come, I know, to Norwich for, on a basis of a temporary basis, but yes. nonetheless you said you were now uh, here. a political refugee in the United Kingdom. Yes. What, what is your question, subject? It, no, the, the question is, I, you're here permanently now, sorry. So I, well, I, am, yes. I am permanently in the United Kingdom. I am a political refugee on the Geneva Convention, but I am in Norwich. Uh, inside the ICOR, International City of Refugee Network Program. I made contact with International Pet Club uh, when I was inside in Cuba. Uh, several of my friends, Cuban writers, have received similar scholarships. For instance, Amir Bayes, um, uh, uh, many other, um, several other things. Um, but uh, I came to Norwich by this scholarship in particular, but my condition like a refugee is independent of this uh, scholarship. So, uh, is uh, because it's scholarship for writers. A refugee is for any kind of person. Mm -hmm. So I am a political refugee in the United Kingdom for five years. Yeah. You've been here for five years, are you going to stay for five years? Well, I can stay here because it's the law, five years, and I can come back to my country. If I apply for my passport again, the border agency gives me my passport and I take the plane and go there, but I prefer to be talking with you here. Yes. <laughs> In fact, refugees are granted uh, something called indefinite leave to remain. So that's the irony, although it's five years. <laughs> that is after the five years, you can apply for indefinite leave to remain. Um, 
Any other questions? We can one more question. Just a quick comment first, another question to the Um George Steiner, who of course has several languages, I asked him uh, which language he dreamed in, and he said the bad ones are in German. Max Seibold, of course, was here for 30 years, but always wrote in German, because he said that he always had to think when he was writing, if it was in English. But if he was writing in German, it just came. It was natural. So that question to you. Question about being introduced as a street photographer, I like. Um, firstly, what is a street photographer? <coughs> I have images of somebody at a beach taking pictures of people with buckets and spades as they walk along. But um, does the aesthetic of the photography relate to the aesthetic of the writing? I sneaked in too often. Well, I, I will um, start quickly first since I'm holding the mic and then pass it on. The, um, French is the missing link in my case, in that when I came to this country, I went to French school, and French is my second language. I was practically bilingual, and I acquired English after I settled here. I wish I could say that I dream in French, but I don't. Um, now, what I, I, I sometimes write in Serbian, but actually when you um, live in a place for 20 years and the world changes around you, rather than sort of saying that I'm proudly bilingual, I sometimes imagine my brain as a kind of set of archaeological layers. So when I came to this country, I couldn't boil an egg. I had to learn how to cook. And half of the uh, herbs and cooking ingredients exist in my mind only in English. Um, I know all the words, the exterior of a car, I know only in Serbian. If, you, if I open the hub, all the bits that you need when you go to, to service a car, I know only in English, because I never had the need of it before. So it's a kind of strange, I don't know. On a positive side, I think I know two languages. On a negative side, I probably don't know one properly. <laughs> uh, well, a, a street photographer is somebody whose photographic practice um, has to do with inadvertence of public life, um, usually on the street, but anywhere that is uh, public. Um, they're not, it's uh, counterposed to um, studio photography or, or posed photography. So that's what street photographer is. And many uh, journalists, uh, photojournalists, fall into that category, for example. The most famous street photographer is Henri Cartier-Bresson. Um, so it's that kind of practice. Its connection to my writing uh, has only uh, recently become more clear to me, and, and now they, they are affecting each other. It affects the writing to the extent that um, uh, what I write, uh, they are my ideal photographs um, that I cannot take. I, I want to be a bird and have that point of view. I, you know, I want to have these interesting vantage points, and my uh, my book is full of transpositions in, in space of height and depth. Um, and for the photographs themselves, um, in addition to, uh, I'm very concerned with verticals. Uh, I might sometimes I drop down to the ground and shoot from there. I I try to get up on the fourth floor or the top of a building. Um, I'm also very interested in. Uh, foreground and background, especially the uh, 
derangement of scale that happens if you line two things up um, with uh, a deep depth of field uh, so that the foreground is completely outsized. The plant in the foreground is enormous and the person in the distance is just as clear but tiny. Um, and I think I try to do the, in my writing also, I'm, also, I'm very much concerned with scale. Um, how in life, big events are happening at exactly the same time as small events. There's a kind of simultaneity of the surface of experience. Uh, life doesn't take a break to give you things one at a time. It's all sort of there. Um, and even if what's happening to you is a small event, if it's very close to you, the, there's a derangement of scale. So I've recently started to articulate the similarity between the two.